Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Good evening, everybody. We begin the readout tonight with a right-wing ghost story. Spooky in many ways. So grab your popcorn and your fascism kryptonite, because this is quite the tale. It takes place in Utah, where groups of strangers are knocking on doors, which is strange already. Random door knocking during a pandemic by people who may or may not be wearing masks. Hard pass. But that isn't even the creepiest part. The person knocking at the door is a volunteer for a group known as the Utah Voter Verification Project. And it's the latest front in the so-called Stop the Steal election fraud conspiracy movement. Now, we know this thanks to an investigative story by the Salt Lake Tribune. Kudos to local journalism, by the way, who looked into this group and their strange door-knocking ways. And this is what they found. The questioners are part of a private statewide effort to root out supposed voter fraud. Sound familiar? Like the thing that they tried in Arizona, examining ballots for Cheeto dust, only to conclude that President Biden actually won the state by an even greater margin. Unlike Arizona, Trump won Utah. But that isn't stopping the Utah door knockers from sniffing out fake fraud with their weird questions and clipboards. The Tribune got its hands on the group's training material. The questioners are trained to keep things vague. They do not wear name tags. They refuse to identify themselves or what organization they're with. They introduce themselves as people of Utah who care about our country and the integrity of our elections. They also appear to have the personal voter information of the people that they were questioning. Now, residents complained about these strangers knocking on their doors, asking questions, because, I mean, who wouldn't? But these strangers did a lot more than just ask questions. They also recorded audio and video without the consent of the person being recorded, which, by the way, is legal in Utah, but still weird. Their mission is to match voters to votes cast in the 2020 election to determine if any were fraudulent. And this is what I mean by ghost story, because they're chasing ghosts, because there is no fraud. Even the Utah governor and lieutenant governor, both Republicans, have called voter fraud claims absolute falsehoods. And it doesn't end there. The Tribune's investigation also revealed that the group has direct connections to the election conspiracy organization linked to, you guessed it, QAnon along with an indirect connection to Mike Lindell, the TV seller of crappy overpriced pillows and MAGA dreams. In the training manual, the Tribune obtained one of the rules includes, quote, please look and act as, quote, Team America, which sounds a lot like Lindell's new nationwide group called Cause of America. And this is where we just zoom out just a little bit, because this is not just happening in Utah. This is happening all over the country. We are seeing voter intimidation and calls for audits in several states. This door knocking is just the latest evidence of the movement's shady practices. The Tribune reported that there are groups on Telegram working to organize this Utah style of door knocking in Florida, in Mississippi and in Nebraska. This is a national campaign by the right to convince America that our elections are a sham. 
It doesn't even matter if they can't find proof. The point is to generate media coverage and investigations and affidavits to create images that generate confusion and cynicism until their death cult leader or some version of him snatches the White House again, which is why the big lie is orthodoxy for the Republican Party. This is the master plan for the rest of us. It's a lie with a body count. The scary thing, it just got bigger. Joining me now is the reporter for this story, Brian Schott, political correspondent for the Salt Lake Tribune, along with MSNBC legal analyst Maya Wiley and DNC and DCCC advisor Kurt Bardella. Um, thank you all for being here. Uh, Mr. Schott, congratulations uh, on excellent reporting. A very weird and scary story that you reported. And I guess my first question is, did this come out because of complaints or, or, or were people, as they were getting these, you know, sort of door knocking, did people actually complain? Did they call 911? Did they ask, who are these people? The complaints came as I was preparing to actually write my story. I had seen posts seeking volunteers for this group on t- Telegram. And you mentioned that this was a ghost story. Um, the people behind it were ghosts. It took me months to track them down. They have no online presence on any of the major social media programs. You can't find them on LinkedIn. I, uh, it took me forever to even find the name of one of the people. I was able to track them down finally and was able to get a recording of one of their training sessions and their materials. But they're doing everything they can to remain hidden. Um, I... And so it, it, it was very hard to get a hold of them, or at, at least to find out who they were. I was unable to get a hold of them. They didn't return my calls. But as I was getting ready to report this story out, I had met with our lieutenant governor, who's in charge of elections in the state. And she said, we're starting to get complaints from some parts of the state that there are people going around knocking on doors, and they appear to have the personal vote voter information of everyone. And so it sort of happened at the same time that these complaints started to come in. But I, w- I had been trying to find out who this group was for quite a long time because it, it, it certainly seemed like they were trying to look for phantom votes, as they called it. Um, But I didn't know who they were or what they were doing. And it really got my attention that they were doing everything they could to conceal themselves uh, from mainstream online uh, space. You know, and and so there have been organizations like this, like True the Vote, that goes all the way back to 2012, that also tried to raise the prospect that President Obama's election was fraudulent. This pretty much happens every time a Democrat wins the White House, let's just be honest. But it generally is not directed at a red, red state like like Utah. Like this is a state that Donald Trump won. So were you able to sort of get to the bottom of what is it that they want to prove? Donald Trump won the state. What are they trying to prove that he didn't win the state or that he won it more? That Joe Biden did not get as many votes in the state as as uh, as as he did on election night. They're looking to they're, they're looking for votes that were cast by people who don't exist or don't live at at some place or don't live at an address or haven't lived there for a while. They're specifically asking, did you get extra ballots? Because we are a universal vote by mail state, mm-hmm. asking people if they got extra ballots and then what they did with those ballots. The whole point, as I pointed out in my in my article, is to get affidavits. That's why they are recording you without your knowledge, uh, so that if you don't do an affidavit, they can recreate one from the recording. They're trying to find out uh, what happened to these extra ballots 
Um, and, and as I listened to this recording of the training session, the person r- running it uh, absolutely uh, uh, claimed that she had found numerous fraudulent votes in the state. Uh, they are adherents of Seth Keschel and Dr. Frank, who uh, are far right um election conspiracy uh, mongers who uh, use math to try and claim that their algorithm shows that there were irregular votes. So, and, and the other people on uh, in, in the training uh, 100% went along with them. They accepted that with, without question that the organizers said, I found some blatantly illegal votes the other day. And they were like, Oh, okay. And it, it's kind of jaw dropping to listen to this because they're, they're living in an alternate reality and now it seems like they're trying to, to weaponize that. So, Maya, let, let's talk about it. First of all, the fact that it is legal, it's a one party. So they're not doing anything illegal. I think that's we should start out with that. It is creepy and it is weird. But what do you make of this sort of broad based overall strategy, which Steve Bannon has also said that he would like to see it to simply undermine the idea of elections being legitimate, period, even if Donald, even if they get the result they want. They seem to want to just undermine the idea that legit that elections in and of themselves are legitimate. What could be the purpose of doing something like that? Well, it's become the greatest mobilizing tool the right has ever had from what we can tell, including organizing to the to the extent that they can have people believe what is patently, obviously not true and organize and use them to their own ends. So we've already had a Republican Party that rather than contesting for the votes of voters are gerrymandering, are using voter suppression tactics. In a way, this has become the popular mobilization of the undermining of true democratic process. Because the point is about this democracy is we're supposed to be trying to get people to become adherents to our policies, uh, not adherents to our own personal power. And I think as, you know, Barton Gelman had in his Atlantic piece, which I think, you know, Brian's story really underscores, is that this is about grassroots mobilization that has been radicalized, but it hasn't been radicalized for a democratic purpose. It's been radicalized for the particular power of Donald Trump. And if he wins, uh, loses re-election again, is already mobilized for essentially the next insurrection. And that's a scary, dangerous thing. Right. And, you know, so, so Kurt, when you marry the fact that, you know, this great reporting by Mr. Schott, you know, ties this to people like Mike Lindell, who's leading a national crusade to say that the whole election was stolen from Donald Trump. The three percenters, you know, the fact that you've got some pretty nefarious characters who are connected to some of this that they had to, like, distance themselves from because of that criminal records. Like there's a whole sort of, you know, sort of scary, sort of spooky aspect to it. But in the end, how much of this is just GOTV that in order to get Republicans to vote at all? You have to go through this process in Republican states of doing the audit, of saying there was fraud and of undermining. And in Utah, this means the whole way they vote, mail-in voting, because it does seem that Donald Trump has sort of created an imperative that to, to turn their voters away from the idea of voting by mail, but also to just get them motivated to participate at all by promising to contest the results of elections, even when Trump won. Yeah, I mean, it's become the ultimate litmus test for the Republican Party everywhere right now 
And, and it's this adherence to this myth that there's something undue about our democratic process. And, and I'll tell you, I hope that everybody in Washington, the entire Democratic Party, is paying attention to Brian's reporting here. Because this is, this is the, the alarm bell should be going off everywhere right now. What is happening that the Republican Party is doing is happening at the local and state level. It is happening outside of the shadow of Washington. It is going directly to people activating their grassroots. This is a systemic, deliberate, blatant effort to completely codify their anti-democratic platform within the entire DNA of the Republican Party. And I'll tell you, they have effectively declared in broad daylight open warfare against democracy. And all the other things that we debate about, all the other things that we disagree about, from budgets to infrastructure to build back better, none of that matters if our democratic process isn't in place the way that it should be, if the integrity of our elections are constantly undermined. The Republicans are making a bet that there is no way in a fair fight that they can ever win a national election ever again. So the only recourse that they have is to try to throw democracy out the door, to try to invalidate votes. I mean, they're going after Utah, which they won, and trying to invalidate Joe Biden votes right now. That tells the lengths in which that they are willing to go to try to ensure that for the rest of our lives, for the rest of this country's life, only Republicans win in power. And Democrats need to wake up to that reality. These people will do anything, say anything, lie about everything, defraud the American people if it means it keeps them in power. There is no low too low for them to go. And everybody needs to wake up to that reality. And just in case people think this is hyperbole, let's just play. Uh, I think we have Steve Bannon actually kind of saying the, what they are trying to do, just saying it out loud. Here he is. Word has it that Purdue, who is a disaster, and that the MAGA base cannot stand the sound of his name. He's been dead silent. He should be in the Senate today if he had stepped up and done the right thing after 3 November. Brian Kemp and David Perdue, that's example of leadership. That is gutless, feckless. But that is part of a podcast in which he essentially went after David Perdue, who is now running for governor uh, in a primary against Kemp, because he wouldn't throw the election to Donald Trump. You know, so so there is there is a desire that in order to be a member, a proper member of the club, you have to be willing to throw an election. Um, and so let me come back to you, Mr. Shot, just because your reporting is pretty direct on this. The secretive nature of this group was one of the sort of eeriest parts of it. Is there a way or were you able to discern whether the people whose doors were getting knocked were able to find out who that was on the other side of the door? And did anyone... Was anyone concerned that they'd given information? I mean, you, you could have given your information to anybody. How would they even know who that was? Well, you know, I, I, I don't have any reporting on that. It was simply just reported to county authorities because here in the state, uh, elections are run by the county. So people were, were calling into their county authorities and saying, we have some strangers coming around, knocking on the doors. They won't tell us who they are. They won't they won't uh, identify themselves. Were, were some of them wearing um, sidearms? Because there was that was another, uh, right, that some of them may have that's been That's actually... That's actually the group in Colorado that uh, is is doing that. The U.S. Election and Integrity Pro Project. They have been going door to door. Some of them have been armed, and the leaders of that group. One is a member of the Three Percenters Militia, and we've established a direct link between the Utah group and the Colorado group. Um, and the gentleman who is the members uh, member of the Militia is also. 
uh, also served as, as security for Representative Lauren Boebert at some of her campaign events. So uh, there's another con- 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 connection for you, but we don't have anything about them being armed here in the state. In the state of Utah. And so, Maya, to you really quickly, and then to Kurt, because that steps it up another level. If the three percenters are involved, we know that they were also involved in January 6th. This takes it to a level because you have had this, you know, these statements and polls that show that there are certain members of the Republican Party that are willing to use violence if necessary to get their way in an election. And so it feels like we're kind of going in that direction. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that terrified me about, Brian, about your reporting um, was that link and also how they were organizing and organizing under the radar, uh, because that very much models exactly what we were seeing both in how January 6th was organized, how Charlottesville was organized. So when we have seen these very scary right-wing, white supremacist, neo-Nazi or fascist organizing, which all of this represents, usually in some coalition of underground communication to organize that also results in violence. And and the pattern and the connections are scarily reminiscent of Charlottesville and January 6th. And, and Kurt, they're organizing on Telegram, which is a sort of alt program, uh, this sort of alt, you know, to Twitter kind of place that the far right organizes. Mm-hmm. And I go back and I mentioned True the Vote again. I remember this in 2012 because these were stories about voter intimidation, watching people as they cast their ballots, following them. The idea that we want to make voters feel like a police car is behind them when they go to vote. And they really meant black voters and brown voters. This all leads in a very mm-hmm. frightening direction. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I just feel like that we're marching towards an inevitable situation where an election is going to happen. These these fools, these people are going to show up with guns armed trying to intimidate voters. Um, it, I, I just want to know what the breaking point is for particularly the media class here in Washington to start identifying the Republican Party for what it is, which is an anti-democratic racist force in America. There's this effort to try to normalize everything, go back to the way it was, uh, you know, relive glory days of Washington. And I'll tell you, we're not going back to that's not going to happen. Yeah. And every time that we excuse the Republican Party's ways and try to normalize them, we are helping and aiding and abetting them in their effort to try to take out democracy. Yeah. Well, there's nothing normal about this. Um, excellent reporting, Brian Schott. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate you. Uh, Maya Wiley, you. Kurt Bardella, both of you, thank you very much. Up next on The Readout. Well, we all remember Trump's meetings with Putin, right? And his constant genuflecting to his authoritarian hero. Nothing like that today as President Biden confronted the Russian leader on his hostile actions toward Ukraine. Also, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar joins me on the racist attacks against her from the Insurrection Caucus and the far right's almost total control over the GOP. Plus. This battle has been going on for nearly three hours. It is no joke. It is a real war. Amazing, rarely heard audio from 80 years ago today when Pearl Harbor was bombed and America went to war. And tonight's absolute worst is moving (laughs) to a new pasture. And it's also utterly predictable. Utterly predictable. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies. 
including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Tonight, we're inching closer to the very real prospect of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. For months now, Russia has been amassing roughly 95,000 troops, plus tanks and artillery near its border with Ukraine. They've been building up since the spring with satellite images showing major combat elements normally based thousands of miles away. Today, President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin held virtual talks on the matter. It was expected that Putin would demand guarantees that NATO will never expand to include Ukraine, a commitment that Biden refused to make. However, Biden did warn Russia's autocratic leader that he would do what needed to be done to protect our allies in the region. Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, provided a a really sobering readout of the call. As we pursue diplomatic channels, we will also prepare for all contingencies, just as we have been doing for weeks now, including through the preparation of specific responses to Russian escalation, should they be required. Specific, robust, clear responses, should they be required. We still do not believe that President Putin has made a decision. What President Biden did today was lay out very clearly the consequences if he chooses to move. After the two-hour video call, President Biden convened a call with the leaders of France, Germany, Italy, and the United Kingdom, the other key players in the NATO alliance. Biden also briefed leaders in the House and the Senate. It was a dramatic and rapid escalation of a situation that's been building for months. Putin has made no bones about how badly he wants Ukraine back. Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire for centuries before becoming a Soviet republic and finally winning independence in 1991 as the Soviet Union collapsed. Since then, Ukraine has worked hard to forge strong alliances with Europe. NATO promised membership to Ukraine in 2008, and recently, Ukraine amended its constitution to restate the country's goal of joining NATO, noting that it is a strategic foreign and security policy objective. According to The New York Times, Putin's aggressive saber-rattling is about a hurt national psyche, an historic injustice to be set right, tied to the dissolution of the Soviet Union, coupled with the separation of a nation that Russians long viewed as simply an extension of their own. It's an open question if Putin will heed President Biden's warning. I'm joined now by Alexander Vindman, former director for European affairs for the United States National Security Council, and Julie Ayafi, founding partner and Washington correspondent for Puck. Thank you both for being here. I have to ask you, um, uh, Alexander Vindman, how different it was for you to watch the way that this president is dealing with Vladimir Putin versus the previous one who, you know, to put it kindly, had a certain adoration for sort of a sort of worshipful attitude toward Vladimir Putin. Just for you, what, how do you see the difference? 
Well, it's it's pretty stark, frankly. I, in a lot of ways, I think uh, the uh, this administration has handled this the matter this cr- looming crisis textbook. Uh, that might not be enough. Um, under the previous administration, uh, I think Putin believed he had license to pre- push pretty far to act with impunity, and uh, now he's testing that. I think that's part of the the what the Russians see at the moment as an opportunity. Uh, the vulnerability of the United States, the United States divided internally, and they're testing the ability to act with little to no consequence. And they're also acting on a keen interest, as you pointed out, to retain Ukraine in their sphere of influence. So it's the need and the opportunity that's driving the Russian action at the moment. And uh, the Biden administration's goal is to demonstrate that there's a significant cost. Question is whether that's been clear, made been, uh, been made clear, and if that's sufficient to overcome this urgency from the Russian side. You know, and, and Julia, you know, it, it feels like this is just sort of an endless feedback loop um, with the Russians, where the U.S. has in the past wanted to have something more like more normal relations. After President Obama was reelected, there was sort of the infamous, you know, I'll have more latitude kind of thing that happened. Um, you know, when. Putin briefly pretended to step aside, even though he never really stepped aside. Um, and into that opening, Putin all overdid it, right? He went and, and grabbed Crimea, um, tried to invade Crimea, you know, in 2014. So he's been super aggressive whenever there's been any attempt to kind of behave as if he is a more normal actor. So where does this end? I mean, it does seem that Putin is determined to go back and invade this country again and force it to be part of his sphere of influence. So how does this how, how does this end? Well, you know, I think that, look, Ukraine wasn't always like this. Putin wasn't always threatening to invade. He was and he doesn't necessarily need to invade. Um, before 2014, Ukraine really was the subject of this tug of war between Russia and the West. And sometimes a more pro-Western government would be in power in Kiev and sometimes a more pro-Russian Moscow would be. And, um, you know, it was only in 2014 when a popular revolution forced out the handpicked pro-Kremlin candidate that Putin felt like this was all done by the U.S., that this was a CIA-sponsored coup, a kind of color revolution that he felt he could invade and lop off some of Ukraine's territory, which, by the way, under NATO rules would make it ineligible for NATO membership because it would now have territorial disputes on its inside its borders. Um, Ironically, though, what Putin has done is he has made Ukraine more pro-Western than it has ever been and probably will be for another generation. He has lopped off the Russian speaking parts, you know, in the east and in Crimea and Ukraine, which, as you mentioned in your intro, which was a natural ally of Russia now is so uh, feels so antagonized by Moscow that it wants to be part of the West more than it ever had before 2014, which is the deep irony of this. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you know, Colonel Vindman, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, you had the former president actually get impeached for for trying to strong arm the president of Ukraine to try to get him to give dirt on Joe Biden. You know, you tried to use them, but it does feel like all that has been done to this country has pushed them more and more, as Julia said, toward the West, not toward Russia, which is where Trump seemed to want them to be as well. What would a sort of Western, sort of European looking rather than Russia looking Ukraine mean for us, for our national security, for Europe? What, what do you think the big picture of that is? Well, 
That is the, that is the, probably the most important uh, question to answer. What it means, what Ukraine means to us. And that's probably something that's not been sufficiently addressed. Ukraine is, uh, holds a key interest to us. For, certainly from a values perspective, it's a struggling democracy, but more importantly, from a geopolitical interest, because Ukraine could be the gravity well that draws Russia into a, a more normalized, more democratic sphere. If Ukraine is so, uh, if, if Ukraine is prosperous and successful, and this is, according to Putin, a country that does, shouldn't exist. It's a, you know, artificial border. It should be part of Russia, but yet it's successful. How does he justify to his own population that they don't have the rights? They don't enjoy uh, economic prosperity. And an investment in Ukraine could be central to our uh, great power competition with Russia. And that's pr- probably the most uh, important reason that we should be investing. Yes, we want to nurture democracy, but we also want to win this this competition with Russia. Russia is looking to undermine U.S. Uh, U.S. led order, un- upend the international system that's allowed the U.S. prosper, and we need to win this one. And we need to support Ukraine. And so then how to win that, I guess, is the question, Julia. I mean, there is the there is this pipeline. It's called Nord Stream that, you know, Russia really wants to get off the ground. It would put money in their pocket, obviously, allow them to send uh, natural gas uh, to to Europe. That's on the table. If they mess up here, that could be ended. Um, Is that the best leverage against them? It isn't up and running yet. So is that actual leverage that Europe, that the U.S., that the West, the reconstructed West, uh, with Trump gone, has against them? Well, I think that's one lever. Other levers that are being discussed are, you know, making it more difficult for the Russian government and Russians to convert rubles into dollars, which would be very punishing for the Russian economy. Another option being discussed as the nuclear option is cutting Russia off from the SWIFT financial system, which would basically make it impossible to transfer money into Russia for example, those oil and gas uh, shipments. So, you know, you wouldn't be able to just do a wire transfer. You'd have to bring in suitcases of cash. And for, you know, a shipment of gas or oil, that's a lot of suitcases, not very convenient. (laughs) The problem is, the problem is that all these measures aren't, you know, they don't impose unilateral hurt. They would hurt the German economy, they would hurt the French economy, and they they would bear the brunt of this more than the U.S. would, which doesn't have as many trade ties with Russia. So I think that's one of the things in the balance. And one of the things that the Biden administration is thinking about is how to shore up uh, American allies yeah. in Europe so that they can withstand this pressure and are willing to withstand what it takes to push on Russia. Well, I have to say it was refreshing uh, to have a president again who actually stands up to Vladimir Putin rather than sort of, you know, hugging him and sitting in his lap <laughs> and, you know, kissing okay, up to him. This it was- is probably why, but this is probably why we have troops on the border with the with the last guy. You know, Putin yeah. didn't need to, he didn't yeah, need because to send he was- he was on his side, which was a, a very odd place for us all to yeah, be. Alexander, I'm, I'm afraid that's not going to be enough. Yeah, I, I'm just afraid that's not going to be enough. It's going to be a concerted effort, pressure, economic sanctions, pressure, uh, military, uh, uh, probably a return of military troops yeah. to, to Europe, uh, the ones that we've drew, drawn back over the uh, course of the uh, past 30 years after right. the end of the Cold War. 
uh, to reassure our allies. It's going to be arming the Ukrainians with with lethal munitions that could make Ukraine a much more bitter pill to swallow. Right. And it's going to take some engagement. It's going to take some engagement for both sides to, to identify mutually beneficial. Right security assurances that they could give each other to pull each other, uh, ourselves back from the brink. Well, we will have more of this conversation. You, you guys are the best two people to talk to, talk to about it. So thank you very much, Alex, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, Julia Yaffe. Thank you both very much. And up next, if you can't police them, promote them. That appears to be Kevin McCarthy's approach to the GOP fringe suddenly becoming the GOP base. Congressman Ilan Omar joins me. And seriously, don't move. <laughs> Because if you haven't heard tonight's absolute worst, it's still ahead. (laughs) The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Here's the deal. In the GOP conference, they consider conservatives the fringe. This town up here thinks conservatives are the fringe. We are not the fringe. We are the base of the party. You know, for once, I actually agree with Margie Three Names. She and her fellow MAGA groupies have laid siege to the once grand old party and seized complete control of it. But what does that mean for the party of Lincoln turned party of Trump? Well, it means to be considered a Republican in good standing, you need to express unwavering support for your dear leader and wholeheartedly embrace the big lie. It means either using or at least condoning racist, Islamophobic, and violent rhetoric. It also means getting nothing done in Congress, with the only policy goal being to, quote, troll the libs. I mean, forget governing. Why would we do that? That's boring. Senator Mitch McConnell basically admitted they have no policy ideas to run on going into the midterms. None. In the House, that seems to be just fine with little Kevin, who wants to be the shepherd for this wayward flock if they can win back control next year. And as for the Republicans' far-right MAGA monsters, as the Associated Press writes, McCarthy's philosophy appears to be, if you can't police them, promote them. Quote, the path to power for Republicans in Congress is now rooted in the capacity to generate outrage. Success in Congress, once measured by bills passed and constituents reached, is now gauged in many ways by the ability to attract attention, even if it is negative, as the GOP looks to reclaim a House majority next year by firing up Trump's most ardent supporters. Joining me now is someone who's been the target for that outrage, Democratic Congressman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota. And Congressman, thank you so much for being here. I've been watching um, your um, media availability since this whole mess happened. And I have to praise you for your poise and your calm in this situation and also echo our friend Mehdi Hassan and ask, how are you doing? How is your family doing? And how is your staff doing? Because 
these staffers are young, young people. So how, how is everyone doing? Well, thank you so much, uh, Joy, for, for having me. I just want to thank um, my constituents and so many people across this country who have reached out, um, who have actually apologized um, on, on behalf of um, my colleague. And, uh, and it's been really tremendous uh, to hear from so many people who condemn uh, the kind of uh, hate-filled rhetoric that we have been dealing with. You know, I'm okay. Um, I have you know, survived things like war, uh, and I'm going to be okay. What I'm worried about is my staff, um, my constituents, and every single member of the Muslim community um, who's worried uh, about what this means for them and without uh, condemnation um, and punishment uh, for this kind of um, anti-Muslim, Islamophobic hate would mean uh, for them in their communities. You know, and you you said and to, to many, and I think it's so true, that, you know, and it, it was so moving. I mean, after 9-11, it wasn't just Muslims who were attacked and brutally attacked and just, you know, picked on and, and othered. But it was also anyone who people thought was Muslim. So you could be Sikh and not be Muslim and still be attacked. And so the, the you know, the risks are broad when people do this. I, I want to play for you. And I, and I will apologize in advance for playing this and apologize to our audience for I don't even like playing her because she's not the brightest bulb in the fixture. But here's Lauren Boebert. This is her not doing her shtick, her like fake vaudeville act. But this is her directly calling you, her colleague in Congress, a terrorist. Here she is. We have serious issues with a terrorist that is a member of Congress. Uh, she praises terrorists. That was the, the Saturday on November 20th. Um, that was a Thursday. And then Saturday, the joke video came out of her joking about you being a suicide bomber. What is there even to say to her at this point or really maybe speak past her and to leadership of the Republicans in the House? What would you want to say to Kevin McCarthy, who's doing nothing about this? Yeah, I mean, this is why so many Muslims across the country have reached out to our office and to other members of Congress, because they know that when anti-Muslim hatred and Islamophobia is unaddressed, it's the Muslim community that ends up paying for it. Uh, I can't imagine... Um, you know, just how incredibly dangerous it is to um, move now from the, the jokingly way that she was uh, trafficking her Islamophobic tropes to now explicitly identifying a member of Congress as a terrorist and the kind of violence um, that that can incite. I mean, if you were at home and you were hearing that, you would be alarmed to think that uh, that there is a terrorist in um, the House of Representatives. Should be alarming to everyone. And I I just want to make people understand how dangerous the usage of her um, words can be, because I am afraid that somebody. Uh, like the the people who have been leaving voicemails in in my office, um, will feel compelled to come and take out the terrorist, and that is not only endangering my life, 
but that's endangering other Muslims um, in uh, the House of Representatives, our staffers um, who resemble me. It also endangers other members um, who might be caught in the crossfire. If we do not uh, condemn, punish, and rebuke this, we will ultimately uh, be gathered um, to mourn the, the loss of life and another tragedy. And that's what I don't want to happen. And I don't think people understand the seriousness um, of the kind of violence this woman is inciting and who she's actually talking to when she looks directly in the camera and says words like the ones that she's used in that video uh, and what those people might be compelled to do. And I, I will note that she's raised millions and millions and millions of dollars like $2.8 million. Margie Green, who supports who has raised like $6 million. That is how you become speaker, folks, by raising lots of money. It is likely that that person, one of those people, will be in leadership, will be in leadership if Kevin McCarthy somehow managed to stumble his way into speaker or he has to appease those people, those people in order to get the speakership. That's who he answers to. He doesn't answer to the American people. He answers to those two clowns. And they and are Joy, dangerous. That is... That is- that is the larger danger as well that the American people have to recognize. Yeah. These are people who think trafficking hateful rhetoric gets them clout. Yep. Uh, and we have somebody who wants to be considered for a leadership position um, in one of the highest institutions in our government yep. who condones this and doesn't yep. have the guts to condemn it, what happens if we allow that person to, to lead yep. and what will be left of our country and its decency? Yeah, indeed. That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Indeed, that is the question. Stay safe. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, please stay safe. Thank you very much for spending some time with us this evening. Truly appreciate you. Uh, and trust me, um, you had... I'm just going to tell you, they didn't tell me they were doing what exactly they were going to say in these teases. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm reading this with y'all. You'd butter. <laughs> You'd butter stick around for tonight's absolute worst. Even if it's past your bedtime. I love my team. It's up next. <laughs> One of the most prominent Republicans and full-time Mango Mussolini bestie is calling it quits. No, not Kevin, sadly. I mean Devin. Devin Nunes, the Republican congressman, announced that he's moving on next month. It says a lot about the Republican Party that he's considered influential, since he's also the guy that sued a fake cow on Twitter for defamation. Perhaps you've forgotten his other exploits. The one-time chair of the House Intelligence Committee came to national prominence when he falsely accused U.S. spy agencies of surveilling the Trump campaign. It was then revealed that he made an infamous secret midnight run to the Trump White House to view classified documents before making that claim, which he went on to backtrack and later became one of Trump's most ardent defenders during his first impeachment while making a cameo in the House Intelligence Committee report into the former president's abuse of power. And again, Devin Nunes tried to sue a fake cow on Twitter. So with a brilliant mind like that, it is no surprise that he's leaving Congress to spend more time with his best friend forever, Orange Julius Caesar, as CEO of the former guy's new social media company called Truth Social. Ironic, since the former guy is known for mostly lying on social media. Despite missing its own deadline to roll out a beta test version of its social media service last month, the company is raking in 
moolah from Secret Investors. Oh, and by the way, we've learned yesterday that a company involved in the new venture is under investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission. So it's fitting that the guy who sued a fake cow is coming together with a guy known for failing businesses over their shared disdain for social media to run a social media empire, which is actually, actually really hard. Donald should know since he put his blog out to pasture after a mere 29 days earlier this year because no one wanted to read it. But anyway, with talent like that, a failed frozen steak salesman and a guy who sued a fake cow, it sounds a lot like a grift. A grift, one to steer the former president's faithful into a corral of disinformation and utter nonsense. And probably milk them dry. Oh, the puns. And that's tonight's absolute worst. We'll be right back. <laughs> Today marks 80 years since the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor for, for on Pearl Harbor, forever changing the course of democracy. Here's part of the stunning live radio breaking news broadcast to NBC during the attack. Hello, NBC. This is KGU in Honolulu, Hawaii. I am speaking from the roof of the Advertiser Publishing Company building. We have witnessed this morning the distant view, a great battle off Pearl Harbor, and a severe bombing off Pearl Harbor by Now, you might think about World War II as America standing up to fascism, but that really wasn't a foregone conclusion at the time. Actually, the the U.S. was pretty isolationist because of the huge toll that World War I had taken on the country, and many weren't too concerned about what was happening in Germany. In fact, we know that the Nazis took pages from the U.S. when it came to, you know, having open racism codified into the country's laws. We even had our own Nazi parades in America. Here's 20,000 people gathered in front of a swastika in 1934 at Madison Square Garden in New York. In 1939, after Kristallnacht, when Nazis smashed and burned Jewish businesses in Germany, American Nazis paraded through the Upper East Side of New York. And while 94% of Americans may have told Gallup they disapproved of Kristallnacht, 72% still said we should not allow Jewish exiles to come to the U.S. to live. Prominent Catholic priest, Father Charles Coughlin, actually blamed Jews for the violence against them. An American aviation hero, Charles Lindbergh, seen here doing a Nazi salute, formed an America First Committee to discourage the U.S. from fighting Germany. Sound familiar? And our media wasn't a lot better. In in an editorial, the Wall Street Journal argued in 1940 that our job today is not to stop Hitler. Americans would better direct their focus to modernize our thinking and our national planning, a none-too-subtle nod to Nazi state planning and central power. So no, the persecution of Jews and other minorities in Europe was not enough to get us to fight against fascism. It took an attack from people of a different race to get us into the war. In fact, the U.S. Army's West Coast commander said straight out, that, quote, the Japanese race is an enemy race. And while many second and third generation Japanese born on United States soil possessed of United States citizenship have become Americanized, the racial strains are undiluted, unquote. The war may have taken a big toll on us, but Americans did ultimately come together at that point, And democracy did prevail over fascism, something that's even more relevant now than ever. And that is tonight's readout.
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.